0: The reason that you can't go out and buy a traditional long-term care insurance policy anymore is because the risk of using that policy is so much greater than the other insurance policies you and I talked about. Insurance companies are in the premium collection business. They're not in the claims paying business. So when you look at something like long-term care, Because of how much older we're all living and the number of people who are actually making claims on these old long-term care insurance policies, it's virtually unaffordable for the insurance industry to insure against that risk anymore. Therefore, to translate that, therefore, the premium- They're unaffordable. Right. Perhaps it has an effect on the others? Stick around and you'll find out. All right, we've just spent a lot of time talking about how to emotionally prepare for longevity risk. Now what I'd like to do is shift the conversation a little bit more to the financial risks exposed to this concept of living too long. This isn't all- uh, This isn't fun to talk about, but it's very important
1: and it's very timely. If you would like to have the privilege of retiring, to be able to experience the things that are going to be fun that you've always dreamed of in retirement,
0: the work has to be done. Absolutely. Right? The hay doesn't get in the barn by itself. No. We've got to make hay when the sun shines, but we've got to be putting it in the barn. We've got to be doing the work. Got to be doing the work. And we're will to be here. I'll tell you, the number
1: of clients that I've experienced that have been willing to do the work and get the hay in the barn and the joy and the satisfaction And the fulfillment that I see them have in retirement, that's what keeps me in this chair. That's what keeps me running the miles, fighting the good fight against the dragon of inflation and the stock market and taxes and little the rising interest rates and inflation. And did I say inflation? What about inflation?
0: You should mention inflation.
1: So that all comes from all the hard work that they did to get the hay in the barn.
0: You're experiencing it with your mom and dad. They've both been in this independent living slash nursing home facility for four and a half years now. I can't imagine that's an inexpensive venture.
1: This, I think, in our industry is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Okay. Tell me more. I don't know how you financially prepare for this. It's truckloads of money. And statistically, my parents are a bit of an aberration. So I think the statistics on time in a skilled nursing facility is is a, a year or less. Yeah. Mom's rolling into three years here in, in August or September. So, it, I mean, <laughs> let's go back to Snoopy and the, you know, a, a, a different building in the Ivory Tower of long-term care and the long-term care insurance industry is a disaster. Yeah. For two reasons. One... Longevity is longer than, you know, greater than than the actuaries ever expected, and the costs of this stuff have escalated at a rate greater than anyone expected. So, number one, people are living longer than they expected. Number two, the costs are higher. The long-term care industry is kaput,
0: and in our world, as- as The long-term care insurance industry is kaput. Sorry, thank you. The long-term care industry is exploding. The insurance- Right. that you can buy to protect yourself from that, right. the cost of that stuff is in trouble.
1: And one of the ways that we help people is, as, as does any good qualified you know, financial advisor or insurance professional, is you transfer risk. Right. You and I have car insurance. We have homeowner's insurance. We have business insurance. Life insurance. We have life insurance. Those are all a risk transfer right? We transfer the risk of you or I being in an automobile accident to an insurance company that is going to help backfill and cover the expenses and the liability that comes from the accident. Well, it's a trade.
0: Right. It's a trade. Right. I pay them money. You are assuming a much smaller known risk called an insurance premium, right? You're paying the money every month in exchange for offloading a much greater unknown risk of totaling your car. Right. We don't know what that collateral and the collateral damage damage. of that. Right.
1: The long term care industry is in dire straits because the concept of being able to transfer that longevity risk in terms of the expense associated, which on the low side is probably six grand a month on the high side is, you know, 16 or 18 grand a month. Yeah. And let's just let me just repeat that for the cheap seats. Six grand a month. After taxes, cashola coming out of your account, upwards of 18000 a month. To take care of yourself. To take care of yourself at a stage of life, as my father likes to remind me frequently, when nobody's having any fun. <laughs> right. right. This isn't the stateroom on the lovely cruise ship that's five stars and, you know, that's the full-on buffet and the entertainment's phenomenal. Sure. This is just basic everyday living. And as they talk about in the long-term care industry the seven activities of daily living right the bathing the feeding the the toileting the mobility all all of those criteria that i i'm at a loss brother i am at a loss for how the average citizen prepares for this and i'm and i'm not trying to have hope leave the building but it's expensive yeah and i'm watching the havoc that is doing to my parents you know pretty well planned comfortable retirement but the cash that they hemorrhage hemorrhage being the key word here that there's i mean sure they could move in they could move in with me or my sibling one of my siblings but we're not skilled caregivers we don't have what's called a hoyer lift which is what my mom needs to help her stand and move to the bathroom right. or the shower we're not trained for that right and so now you're going to have in home care at the rate of $30, 40 $50 an hour, and that's 24-7, and the home may not be set up for it, or in this case, the apartment wasn't set up for it. It's a big question mark to me.
0: And I'm glad we're talking about this because this is where, again, your, your parents play such an incredible example for us because I think they stumbled into some things intuitively. We'll use your word accidentally where maybe they didn't necessarily plan for things, but based on how their lives played out, it worked out okay for them up to this point? Granted, not that your parents are living a happy life right now or doing the things that they want to do, but up to now, they've at least been able to afford this type of care, correct? Yes. How old was your dad when he retired? 79. So would you agree with me that perhaps part of the reason why your parents have been able to flip this bill that they've been able to flip on the money that they've been able to save came from the fact that they were still contributing and saving and not depleting and living off of traditional retirement assets in their 60s and 70s. Yeah, because what I mean, what you're looking at is a 15 year window. Yeah, I mean, if if the typical person retires at 65 and your dad didn't until almost 80, that's 15 more years of saving and contributing versus no longer saving and contributing and actually starting to withdraw and take financial resources. So perhaps one of the ways that we can offer just from proof of watching your parents is perhaps this conversation about retirement needs to change and what that really looks like and what that really means. And that perhaps 60 to 65, when you're getting ready to be done with that career, Perhaps there is something new that you could be transitioning into, something that continues to allow you to bring money into the house, create, you know, continue to create, continue to grow. But for your parents, it seems like what's helped them the most is the fact that they just saved and worked a little bit longer than the average. Quite a bit longer
1: than the average, certainly today. Yeah. And there's two things I want to address there. One is my dad loved what he did. Right. Loved... What he did. Really? No reason really to stop. Didn't want to give it up at 79. Yeah. But it just, you know, for reasons I don't need to get into, it was just kind of, you know, it was time. As recently as yesterday, I had a phone call with a corporate executive for a publicly traded company who, she's like, I got, I got to get out of this. I can't, I can't keep doing this. I got to retire in five years. I got to retire in five years. Almost like she was like having a, a, a conversation with herself, although we were on Zoom together. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how old she was. And I said, may I ask how old you are? And she said, I'm 55. Oh, wow. I said, okay, great. So you want to be done in five years? Well, I want to be done from the corporate thing. I can't do this anymore. But it pays me really well. But I can't really retire at 60 because the cost of the health care to get me to Medicare is going to be exorbitant. Unaffordable. Yeah. Which... We should have a guest on the show to come in and talk about that because I don't think it's as I don't think it's quite as bad as people think. While certainly it is going to be a large expense, are you really willing to trade five years of your life doing something you don't want to do for health care?
0: It's two grand a month for a married couple. About that—that's what I'm seeing with our clients who retire before sixty-five. For a couple, it's about two grand a month for health insurance. To me, it's just one that's of these the numbers. Where... That's the number you have to think of. Is it worth giving up five more years of your life over Boy, twenty-four thousand bucks a year? It isn't for me. No, it's not for me either. But that's an individual decision to be made.
1: But going back to this concept of perhaps working longer, yeah, and the unique ability conversation that we love having with with clients and that we've talked about here on the show in terms of an exercise, that's what's going to help you work longer. Whether whether it be full-time or part-time is if the path that you're on is sucking the soul out of you, you need to stop.
0: Right. Time to get on a different path. That's your long-term care insurance right there is somewhere in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, finally raising your hand and realizing that you're all done being in the hamster wheel for somebody else. It's time now to slow this thing down, figure out what my unique ability is. And recreate Life 3.0 so that I could actually reemerge in this world, giving my gifts and talents away to the world in a way that just completely rolls my socks up and down that I could do forever the way your dad did, the way my father's doing it. That, exactly. And he's now 77. 77, yeah. And still loving
1: what he does. Recently upped his contract, if I recall. Yep.
0: Although so he's those, threatening retirement.
1: We'll see. Well, those, those. Well, that, that brings in a whole separate conversation, which we could make a show on preparing emotionally for retirement, right? I recently had a client in that after 40-something years of working for the same company, he retired last August. And he's like, I knew I was financially ready, but I wasn't emotionally ready. Sure,
0: that's the hard one. That's the big hard one. And that's why when we started this conversation today, rather than getting into the financial risk of longevity, I wanted to start with the emotional risk. Because I think preparing for the harder side of that Preparing for it financially is math formulas. Those are math equations. So to answer your question of I, I don't know that I know how to solve this problem, I don't know how to plan for this, it's math. It's left side of our brain. It's doing the calculation to figure out what do I need to be saving to be able to support myself in life and then be able to flip the kind of bill that your parents are paying right now for their care and being able to afford that. The reason that you can't go out and buy a traditional long-term care insurance policy anymore is because the risk of using that policy is so much greater than the other insurance policies you and I talked about. The statistical liability that insurance companies have to have to process a claim on a car insurance policy, a homeowner's policy, a life insurance policy. The, the percentage of claims relative to the amount of premiums that insurance companies are bringing in is tiny. Insurance companies are in the premium collection business. They're not in the claims-paying business. So when you look at something like long-term care, because of how much older we're all living and the number of people who are actually making claims on these old long-term care insurance policies, it's virtually unaffordable for the insurance industry to insure against that risk anymore. Therefore,
1: to translate that, therefore the premium-
0: They're unaffordable.
1: Right. They're right. unaffordable. Right. So And they've been jacking up the premium increases in the 20, 30, 40, 50% a year. Yeah. So just because you were paying five grand a year last year, yeah. you might be paying 7,500 this year and 12,000 the following year. Absolutely. So they've lost credibility in terms of any, any predictability to what that premium payment is going to be,
0: much like fire insurance in California. Yep. Absolutely. Right? Yep. The whole point being is that you and I are sitting here as a couple of 50-something-year-old guys learning from your parents' experience. And then I almost feel like it's our responsibility to come in here into our sanctuary and talk about how we are going to prepare ourselves both emotionally and financially. And then we can invite the financial sobriety community to participate if they'd like. If people choose to be with us in this preparation process, awesome. If they don't, that's okay too. I'm here today just to have a conversation with you about what I'm observing in your family with your parents and how we can learn from that and do something about that positively in our own lives. And just connection, right, the emotional side of it, David's conversation with us last session in studio, to me, seems like the simplest most logical way to prepare for the emotional fallout that comes with longevity risk.
1: I know we talked about this a little earlier in the show, but, you know, self-care, right? Right. And why is self-care relevant to this conversation? Because if what you're doing is sucking the life out of you, you need the self-care to be able to run those miles a little bit longer until you can pivot, until you can go look at your unique ability and reorganize life from a work expense livelihood perspective and make that shift so you can run more miles. I think and we've we've talked about this in in previous episodes that a conventional fairy tale retirement around retiring at fill in the blank 60 Six, 62 yeah. 65 and never earning another dollar that's gone. That's over. It's fantasy. It's
0: fairy tale like you said. It's fairy it's a, tale. It's a
1: fairy tale. Mhm. Because we don't have pensions. There are so few of our clients that have pensions, which are lifetime sources of income, that if you are lucky enough to have it, then I think your chances of that fairy tale retirement, of retiring at 62, never earning another dollar, are, are very high. So if that's not the case, then we've got to retread. We've got to take the off-ramp, come off the freeway, re-engineer, Figure things out in terms of of what are those unique abilities and talents and skills, passions and gifts that can let you run
0: more miles. And then how do I go out in the world and talk about these passions and skills and gifts that I have? And who do I go into the world and talk to them about? And how do I start opening up these doors of opportunity for me to apply these skills and gifts to the world going forward? That will provide you a greater sense of? Connection. Yes. Connection, freedom. Purpose. And finance. All sorts of benefits. Absolutely. Financial preparation. We talked about how your dad retired close to 80 years old and those extra years of saving and not spending probably helped he and your mom considerably. And your dad's doing much the same. Much the same. And that you know, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you. You know, my parents are just about what, 17, 18 years younger than your parents, what kinds of conversations, so if I have parents in their mid-70s, you have parents in their late 80s to mid-90s, there's a lot I could learn from that. What kinds of conversations should someone like me who's got parents in their 70s be having with their parents right now that either you did have with your parents 20 years ago or you wish you had with your parents 20 years ago? I'm going to start with an observation. Okay. Okay
1: which is the move needs to happen almost before they're ready. What do you mean the move? And I mean, the, what I mean by the move is from the house to if they're- Whatever's still, next. Whatever's next. If that is moving closer to you or your brother, they're already close to your brother, but I'm just using this as an example. The Dell
0: Webb facility, North Shore is Towers, it, the Nottingham. It, yeah, what,
1: whatever whatever it is. What do they see next? And- that is a challenging conversation because I can tell you I was having that conversation with my parents for years.
0: Hmm. When did you start?
1: I can't exactly tell you, but it was years before my mom started to decline physically.
0: And how did you have that? So you would just walk into the house and have and just ask mom and dad. I mean, would it was always a, an opportune moment to ask them, "Hey, what are you guys thinking about? What's next?" How how did you have those conversations? Kind of like that, yeah
1: kind of like that, is do you ever think of anything beyond living on Danbury Drive?
0: Hmm.
1: Well, no, not really. Why? <laughs> well, because there may come a time when all the stairs in this house or the fact that the the master bedroom is up a flight of stairs and you get to the kitchen is a flight of stairs and down to the family room is a flight of stairs. And I mean, there, there, is, there is something to this living on one level thing that I've observed with, with clients all these years. But the challenge with it is there's really no easy conversation because I, I think of so many clients that we've worked with where where they live economically mm-hmm. is the cheapest place they can live.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe the mortgage is paid off and all they have are property taxes and homeowners insurance. But for them to move, they're now going to be having a new property tax bill that's going to be multiples of what they had if that's another home or a condo. And then if they're moving into some kind of a community- that's I mean we've seen it with so many clients where you know their overhead goes from two grand in terms of living expenses to five or seven grand in an independent living scenario. It's not a singular conversation by any means. Sure, ongoing. And it's an ongoing conversation, and uh, boy,
0: what I suggest the, you might even have to take the money component out of the conversation to have the conversation. What I mean by that is, is if you were to go back twenty years and replay the tape, would it have been helpful? To say to your mom in that example, let's take money out of the conversation. Let's make believe for a minute money's not an issue. Honestly,
1: with mom, it never was. Ah, it was always with dad. It was emotional. Okay. It was always an emotional connection that she had to the house where she had raised her family for 50 plus years. Okay. For dad, it was generally the economics. And he was ready to move before she was. He could see that the move needed to happen before she did. It's a challenging. I mean, you, you have to you have to start the conversation soon, if you have a parent in their seventies.
0: Well, I'm standing to sandbagging sooner. a little bit. I mean, I, I asked it's, you that question because I want to know when I should be having that conversation. In your parents' case, it's now. Good because I've been having it, yeah. and I wanted to make sure that if now they're is not the time in good health,
1: it. it's yesterday.
0: Right. Okay. No, mom and dad are in good health. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Health can sneak up out of out of nowhere sure. too. Right. Sure. But there's no foolproof answer, but getting, you know, the, and one, one other thing that has so much to do with this conversation is, is the context of dignity and the dignity around growing older and the levels of dignity keep slipping. Mm. I always refer to it as choice and control. The longer they covet choice and control in their decisions, there may reach a point where you lose the choice and control of your decisions. Mm. That is not meant to be a Yogi Berra but it is meant to be... That's a gym. It's a gymism. Yeah. Because that's exactly what happened, was by waiting too long to have choice and control themselves, is my siblings and I had to step in and make decisions for them. We always gave them as much choice and control over those as we could, but it, it got to a point where we had to move mom. It was no longer safe, feasible, Functional, health practical. Risk. Yeah,
0: there was health risk, too much health too
1: risk. Too much health risk to be in the home. The home sat empty for two years. That's not what homes are designed to do, right? So now you have a different series of challenges is you have an empty home in a winter wonderland and all this stuff. So the dignity of having choice and control is a, is a big part of this process. And the sooner you can have those conversations, mom, dad, what how do you want to spend your later years? Is it here? Is it someplace else? You know, my parents were blessed to be able to escape the winters of upstate New York and, and get to a tropical oasis in Southern California. And for them, it was never going there full-time because they knew they would be, wait for it, isolated from family. There was no, there was no family there. Family was either in Syracuse or here in Northern California with my brother and I. So that was out. That was not for them they chose to age in place and what that meant was okay we have we're going to have a number of finite options around us and just having those conversations and trying to be as empathetic and understanding and loving and caring as you can possibly be with giving them as much choice and control over how they want to you know where where and how they want to age mm-hmm.
0: is that a conversation you and Beth are starting to have for the two of you
1: no no, we're we're in the vortex, right? We we are.
0: You guys are in the middle. We are, of it.
1: we are the textbook example of the sandwich generation. We have two kids out the door with college. We have two parents that are, two, you know, in decline.
0: Ki- well, you have you have two kids out the door to college. You still have two kids living in the house, and you've got parents on the decline.
1: Yes. So we, I mean, we are as textbook an example of the sandwich generation as you can you can come up with. So in that vortex, as we've said many times, is it's hard to see, yeah. right? You just you let can't, alone talk you, about you it yourself. You can't think straight. You yeah. can't see straight. It is, it is an ongoing daily conversation with my siblings about, you know, the status or, or something that we need to do to try to help mom and dad, whether it's medically, whether it's emotionally, whether it's financially. So, no, we are not, candidly, we are not having those conversations because we are too in the throes of what's going on.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. You guys are in the thick of it. We're not as much in the thick of it, even though both our boys still live at home. They're older. They're fairly independent. My parents aren't quite at the point yet, like your parents are, where they need my brother and me to be more attentive to what's going on. I mean, they're... They're still living their very, very best lives. We're starting now to have conversations with mom and dad about, you know, what do you want tomorrow to look like? What does the ideal scenario look like? What does it look like when you don't want to walk upstairs anymore? I'm trying not to have the when you can't walk upstairs anymore conversation more the when you don't want to walk upstairs anymore. What does that look like? And We're starting to have that conversation like some of these people you've talked about, my parents are fortunate enough to be on that pension thing. Yes. I'm not. You're not. So we, we have some different challenges. Amy and I have the, the benefit of being able to start having some of these conversations early, which is what I would suggest to our community who's listening today, is that if you're not in a position that Jim and Beth are in, where you're stuck in this vortex and you're in it, and you have the time and space where your parents are in their 60s or 70s, and you're starting to have these conversations, I would suggest having the conversations yourselves a little bit. Just start. I I just turned 50 years old and Amy and I are starting to have these conversations about what do we want it to look like down the road because there's a realization. You and I have talked about this a lot. Retirement is not some universal phenomenon that looks the same for 10 or 20 years and then it's over. First, I would nominate it's a privilege. It's an absolute privilege. And it's a privilege that comes in different phases. It's not an entitlement. No, it's a privilege. Yes. That I we, think we need to it's really- It's a door that we get to walk through Yes, where we go from have to to want to in life. That requires a lot of discipline and preparation. And planning, absolutely. And when we do get to walk through that door, we're pretty much responsible for taking care of ourselves. Nobody's going yep. to do it for us what really upsets me about the mainstream messaging that our industry has had for years is this concept of the four percent rule right there's this overriding rule that an old merrill lynch colleague of yours came up with years and years and years ago that says was he one of harry markowitz's buddies he probably was they probably were hanging out at the old harvard club together back in the 1950s coming up with ways that big institutions could manage money the four percent rule is this idea that as long as I don't withdraw more than 4% of my retirement savings and adjust for inflation each year, that I should be able to live a 30-year retirement without running out of money. Now, this has been in the newspaper a lot lately or, you know, in the news feed. What's a newspaper? I I corrected myself. I checked myself there. (laughs) Remember, I just did get my AARP card in the mail. I'll send
1: you an audio message on that later.
0: Would you send me a tape if you got this on VHS for us to listen to later? Beta, beta. Oh, we're going beta message. Now we're beta today. Nice, nice. This idea of the 4% rule has been back in the news again because the architect of it is suggesting... Die broke. ...that perhaps it should be a little lower or you're going to die broke, that perhaps you should be withdrawing less money out of your retirement accounts to account for the fact that we're dealing with inflation, we're dealing with longevity risk, we're living longer than when I first developed this concept. But what I think he's missing is the fact that retirement as you and I have begun to define it, has these three distinct phases that cost very differently. And well, that it's and, not just and, some universal phenomenon that I'm going to make, you know, 60 cents on the. I mean, th- there's this also this theory that we don't, we don't spend as much in retirement as when we're working. And may I say
1: that I came up through Merrill yeah. Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, and that's what they always prescribed. That's how they trained you, was that the client when they retire... And this may have been their own data gathering, but we were trained that they were going to need seventy to eighty percent of their pre-retirement income. Right, and it. And I always be thought that was. Truth. I always thought that was hogwash. Yeah, it is. It's hogwash in the context of right now. If if you're if you're a working person, and you work a conventional nine to five kind of gig Monday through Friday, the two most expensive days of the week in terms of when you spend are Saturday and Sunday. Thank you. So when you retire, how many of those days of the week do you have? All of them. Uh Uh-huh. So now you have seven days. Every day is Saturday. Every day is Saturday to go do, be, explore favorite people, favorite activities, favorite places. Harold's going to be excited when you retire because you can go get a haircut once a week now. Once a week. Right. Right. That's a little bit more than 80% of your pre-retirement income.
0: But you and I have connected the dots on more things practical versus theory than we could shake a stick at. Almost everything theoretically in our business that you and I have put better than 25 years of practical experience into tells us something very different than what the theories you and I were taught in training rooms, one of which is people spend more money in retirement than they did when they were working. Certainly in the first five to seven years. And certainly in the last five to seven years. And those, when you think about retirement, We always call them the three phases, which are the go-go phase, the slow-go phase, and the no-go phase. My parents, although dad's still working, I've been having a lot of fun arguing with him that he's been retired for 15 years because he goes to work because he wants to, not because he has to. Correct. And these last 15 or so years, mom and dad have been mostly in go-go
1: mode. 100%.
0: They're traveling. As long as as I've known you and I've known them. They've been going. They've been in the go-go phase. In the last two years since covid they have definitely transitioned well into the slow-go phase. And now, it's important. Their health has not changed. They can go do whatever they want. May I? Sure. Meh. Yeah. I mean, eh. how many times are you going to go on that eh. cruise? Right, that's that's creeped into the to the yeah. vernacular. Been there, done that. I mean, how uh, many times can we you travel know, is complicated, and I don't want to make the reservations. And uh, there's really nice cafes in New York City, which we live 20 miles away from. What yes. do we need to go to Paris
1: for? That's how you know you or your loved one has transitioned from go go to slow go. Right, it's and they're, obvious they're, in they're, my parents' case. Yes, they transitioned to no go. They're no go. Yes, right. They they cannot go anywhere, do anything. Everybody comes to them.
0: And what happened to their cost of living in retirement from slow go to no go? Yeah. Most expensive phase. Yes. So the beginning, the go-go years of retirement, they're expensive. You're traveling, you're doing all the things that cost a lot of money today based on this recent spike in inflation. But generally speaking, not stuff that costs a lot inflation-wise over time. In the slow go years- your expenses drop considerably because you're at home a lot. You're not doing as much. But then when the no-go years show up and Pat and Wes and my grandmother Bernice is experiencing, the costs escalate incredibly. And some of the highest inflationary costs we could ever experience in the healthcare world. You and I have been factoring in financial planning work, six to 8% inflation on healthcare costs since the days of Methuselah. I mean, we've been And 3% on everything else. On everything else. So we've accounted for this inflation for a long time. But I guess the point I'm making is to financially prepare for this concept of longevity risk requires us to rethink everything we've ever been taught about what retirement looks like, what a reasonable or responsible amount of money that I can use from my retirement savings every year looks like. I think we need to reevaluate that and start accepting the fact that the most expensive years of our retirement could be the last two to five years, and putting a plan in place that supports that.
1: And the key word there is, I think, plan.
0: Yes. Because it is
1: overly simplistic to say something like the 4% rule. Too generic. It's so unintentional (laughs) in in what we do to just simply say, okay, if I have this much in the bank, I can take 4% and I'll be fine. It's too, it, no different, dude, than the, than the nutritional counseling that I've gone through. Oh, you're and, not
0: just on 2,000 calories a day?
1: Right. And the generic recommendations for various foods and what works at a meta level versus what works at the individual level. And that's where, going back to self-care, we have spent money on customized solutions for my nutrition, for Beth's nutrition, for our daughter's nutrition. The same applies to financial planning. Please, please, please do not just simply reply or rely on something like a 4% rule when interest rates are pretty much near zero. So your most, 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 most conservative money is getting zero and inflation right now is pick your favorite round number, <laughs> 6, 8, 10%, right? That math does not compute. No,
0: it doesn't. I wanted to spell a little myth here before we wrap things up today. I get asked by a lot of my friends, hey, what's your investment minimum? A lot of my friends don't think that they have enough money to do business with me, that financial advisors have a certain investment minimum. And and let's and be many transparent. Do. Many do. Most do. What most people I meet don't realize exists in the world today is an entire industry within an industry called financial planning that you can have very little in assets, but have such an incredible need to go do financial planning. And if you allow the fact that you don't have what you believe to be enough assets to go see a financial advisor keep you from getting the planning work done that you need to do, you're doing yourself a disservice. There is a whole community of financial planners in your world Go look up the Financial Planning Association. I think you're doing a little Googling right yeah, now for C- us. It's cfp.net. Go to cfp.net. C-F-P. Charlie, Charlie Francis Peter.net. And do a search around you about somebody who can do this planning work. It'll cost you a couple bucks. It'll be an investment that is well worth it. So the benefit of going to cfp.net is that you can do a local search to find
1: a list, not one, but a list of certified financial planners, which is is the designation in the industry of the highest standard, like a CPA, right? Like someone that has their law degree. This is a rigorous process that I went through back in 2004 when Methuselah was in kindergarten. Nice. And they're going to provide you a list of local professionals and go kick the tires. Yep. Go on their websites, schedule an initial consultation and get some professional advice. It may take you a while to find one because if someone does have a minimum and they won't engage, okay,
0: cool. That you're, wasn't that wasn't meant to be. You're also going to find certified financial planners though that specialize in financial planning where and they don't and that perhaps that's that, is that all might they be do. the way to, and that might be the way to go. If if you're worried like some of my friends who don't have what they feel are the assets worthy of walking into a financial advisor's office, I'm telling you to flush that thought that You've got longevity risk on the table that you need to deal with, and there is an entire industry of financial planning ready to help you. Go to cfp.net, find the financial planner in your community that you feel you can connect with, and go get your planning work done. And then I would
1: also emphasize when you, when you do meet with different professionals, you are looking for connection. Ah. You are looking for a level of connection with that individual that team where they're empathetic and they have a, a, a real heart-based belief system in wanting to
0: help you plan for this. Not just financially, but personally, professionally, and even emotionally. And with that, my friend, I'm going to call it. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and be sure to subscribe. And check out our website, yourfinancialsobriety.com. Thanks again for listening today. Here to help you find more clarity, confidence, and capability along your journey into financial sobriety. I'm Matthew Grishman. And I'm Jim Gebhardt.
2: to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance.